You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today is the second part of my interview with Lieutenant Colonel Matt Sacra. In the previous episode, Matt discussed his time as a platoon commander. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck. And today is the second part of my interview with Lieutenant Colonel Matt Sacra. In the previous episode, Matt discussed his time as a platoon leader in Mosul. In today's episode, he talks about more monumentous events that occurred during that 2004-2005 deployment. Matt, those two ambushes, were they the last significant event you were in? No, there was was still one more. So that was was in November 11th, and I actually had two more until I moved units. The next one was in December, and thankfully there, there weren't any shots fired, but there were several aircraft, Apaches, that had observed a whole bunch of very expensive limousines and other expensive types of vehicles with a bunch of fancy-dressed people getting into them with AK-47s. And our first thought was, why don't they just shoot them? They, they sent our platoon to, to go chase these guys down. Actually, I think it was our company, and our platoon was the lead. And we kept thinking, why don't the Apaches just shoot them? This is ridiculous. But we had had intel that this is how the enemy operated. They would constantly have very expensive vehicles. They would load them up. They, they wore nicer clothing. And they loaded up with their AK-47s. And they would, they would begin, you know, clearing shops and firing. Well, it turned out that this was not the case. It was not the enemy. We followed them all the way out of town and up a hill. And right as we're getting ready to fire, one of my culturally sensitive NCOs is about to pull the trigger on his 240, and he says, wait a second, something's not right. And instead of pulling the trigger, thankfully, he took more minutes to critically think and examine the situation, and he said, these people are way too nicely dressed than the insurgents are. They're, this is a wedding. And because he made that call, none of us fired a shot, and we avoided having a, what could have been an operational strategic blunder for the theater at that, that, that moment. Was that soldier's cultural intelligence coming from training or something that he had picked up on his own? I, I want to say it was a combination of both. So he was the one that wanted to start learning Arabic with me, whereas other soldiers and NCOs were not inclined to do so in the platoon. So when we went through training at the Joint Readiness Training Center and other places, he was very sensitive to, I want to learn this culture. I want to get to know these people. He was a very happy and friendly guy. 
newly promoted NCO. And so he was, he was very big on that. So it was a mixture of personality and the training that he'd received prior to deployment. Did he speak to the civil affairs specialist in you? I think he did. Yeah. It, it was, it was somebody that kind of spoke that language. And, and even though I, I wasn't very good at Arabic myself, I, I had taken the same strides to start learning it because I cared about people and, and you could tell he did too. And I think, you know, every NCO in my platoon cared about people. It's just some of them had more of a, a culturally sensitive soft spot in them, if you will. And, and he was one of them for sure. After you decided not, you know, that soldier decided to take the tactical pause and you, the rest of your platoon doesn't engage a wedding party. Did you, were you able to pass that lesson on to the rest of the company? We were. We, we had a good discussion about it briefly over the radio, and then the entire t- company turned back and got, went back to base. And we just had a big discussion about how we got to be really sensitive to these things. We've all just come out of some firefights mid-November, and it's now early December. There's been other firefights in the city that have happened at this point. And so we said we, we really just, it's, it's really important to, to go through the shoot or don't shoot in your mind. And it's not just the officers that need to know this. It's the sergeants. It's the soldiers. I mean, in this particular case, it was an E-5 sergeant, and he was the lead uh, on that decision-making criteria. It wasn't myself in that situation because he was in a vehicle that was closer to the wedding party than I was. You mentioned that there was another significant event. Yes, this has been the the last really big one that I had uh, prior to being wounded months later. And this was in December, and it was the Mosul defect bombing on December 21st. And... Just like those pre-deployment concerns that Captain Jacobson had had that I brought up, and we had, you know, we had been through medical training and, and, and such for this, this type of event, you don't expect to have to use it. But on our way up to the chow hall on December 21st, all of a sudden, I'm walking up there with one of my, two of my NCOs, and we see this massive explosion. The chow tent starts ripping up like confetti. And we're right outside the concrete barriers. We actually felt the blast. And for a second, we're wondering, okay, is this a rocket? Is it a mortar? What is this? And we have a short discussion on, is that incoming or outgoing? And then we see the confetti and we say, no, that was definitely, that was definitely the chow hall. And then all of a sudden, people just start running. They start streaming out of the chow hall in every direction, running into bunkers. And I paused for about five to 10 seconds. It seemed like a lot longer, but it was about that short. And I thought, okay, you know what? If people are running out of the chow hall, there's no more blasts. That means there's casualties in there. We have to go in. And so I, I led the two NCOs to, to head into the chow hall to start evacuating casualties. What did you see when you came around the corner? It was darkness with a gaping hole of light in the center and a, a haze of an explosion everywhere. There were tables turned upside down. There were bodies everywhere. You couldn't tell what was a meal turned over from plates versus what was guts. And intelligence later reported that this person had detonated himself. It was an, it was an Iraqi citizen that uh, was wearing uniform to some degree. We don't know if he was a soldier or, or what have you, but he had detonated himself and he had ball bearings at the bottom of a backpack and he went up to one of the salad bar lines in there. And he had blown himself up. And so we just, we walked in seeing all that devastation and immediately started looking to evacuate people. Did you freeze or did instinct overcome that initial reaction? I I think mentally I froze, but my body was just moving toward the farthest point that I could toward the explosion site to start helping people. It was, I I didn't even know what I was going to do, 
but I, my body just already started moving there. And before I knew it, I was helping pick people up and put them onto stretchers. And when we ran out of stretchers after two or three trips outside, we started turning tables upside down and carrying people out on those. Was there a sense of yours that took over? Yeah, there were, I think it was several at once. Um, I remember hearing a ringing in my ears, but also I could still hear people shouting out commands to grab CLS bags. Um, you could you could smell the gunpowder. I don't have a very good sense of smell, but it was pretty clear in your nostrils. There was just a haze, and you know I'm I'm not really good at the smell of death, but you could tell that stuff had been cooking in there. You know that there were the, the amount of bodies and things that were on the floor that we were stepping over and and on, and trying to evacuate people and blood. It it just it felt like death in there, and the the only thing that came to mind was. Let's get everybody out of here as fast as we can so that we can triage them. Did you play a role in that triage? I did in the sense that I went where the medics told me to, basically. They, they had already worked it out by the time I got my first casualty out of the building as I was carrying on a stretcher. And they said, hey, if this person you know, is this degree injured, put them over here. If they're that, put them over there. And for some people, you weren't even sure what their degree of injury was. So you just got them to set them down until a medic came up to you. And I think that started to happen after we got our second or third uh, person out of the, the dining facility. And we started to realize, okay, these are the types of injuries they have. This is where they need to be placed. Was there any thought to who you were grabbing? No, there, there wasn't at all. It was, it, it, at first it was, let me try to get a soldier maybe. But it, most of the soldiers looked like they had grabbed. And so I said, let me get civilians. Let me get uh, Iraqi soldiers in there. It, it really doesn't matter. We just got to get everybody out of this place. How many trips did you wind up making in? I think it was three. And I want to say the, the third or the fourth trip, I, I, can't, I still can't remember because part of it is fuzzy. But at the third or fourth trip that I had gone in, there was nobody else left to carry. And so I went back outside and tried to just tend to the wounded as best I could, treat them for shock, talk to whoever was conscious, and until a, a vehicle could come to take them to the combat support hospital. As a platoon leader at the time, did that kick in at all? These could be my men? Or were you kind of wrapped in, I'm going to say, in a gauzy state, focused on just anybody that's in front of you and wounded? I think it was more the gauzy state of just anybody that's, you know, in front of me and wounded. I didn't really think that it could be my men. I thought, man, this is an awful tragedy. And it, it, you almost feel guilty for the thought, but you feel like, well, I hope it's not anybody I know, but I don't have time to think about that right now. When did you have time to, to step back and fulfill the officer role? I would say it was after we had gotten all the casualties where they needed to be, and we had talked to a civilian that was one of the casualties and had treated him the best we could, and we were just trying to get to know him and treat him for shock. And vehicles were coming and taking the casualties away to the combat support hospital. And that's when other soldiers in the unit were coming up to me asking if I had seen the commander. Have, has anybody seen Captain Jacobson? And... I started hearing rumors that someone had given him mouth to mouth and that other people didn't make it. And so there was a lot of discussion on who was injured and who wasn't. Did an instinct to take over or to take charge kick in? It did, but it was clear to me at that point that other people had already figured out, mainly the medical personnel, this was a casualty evacuation. And I was just on my way into the chow hall. And so even though I wanted to take charge, I looked around and I saw that, okay, people have it. They've got it figured out. So I need to, to best support the medics as, as well as I can. And if they don't need my help, then I don't want to be in the way either. 
when the rumors about Captain Jacobson and your men start coming in, or the company's soldiers start coming in, is that a moment you started to distance yourself from the immediacy, or did you stay stay with the casualties then? It is, yeah. I started to distance myself, and it got to a point where you saw that there was enough um, people working the, the evacuation operations that I wasn't needed anymore. Because, you know, there was no platoon or company or battalion. I mean, this was a mixture of all kinds of people from the FOB. And so I, I started to walk back with the soldiers I had gotten up there with, and we were having conversations about what we had seen, what we'd experienced, and we, our, our first thought was, let's make sure everybody in the platoon is okay when we get back, and then the company, and it'll proceed out from there. Is that what happened? It is. And when we got back, there were a lot of discussions about who was injured. And we had heard that Captain Jacobson had been evacuated to the combat support hospital and that he had, uh, his eyes had rolled in the back of his head, that he had been given mouth to mouth and that they were hoping that he would recover. And so it was a waiting game at that point. Uh, it was very, it was very odd because you didn't know where everybody in the company was. I quickly was able to discern that I had all my platoon there, including the mortar men, but there was no clue if everybody from the company was safe or not. As the mobile gun platoon commander, are you the senior lieutenant other than the XO? I was, yes. And the chain of command didn't always go that way because it was an infantry company. So even though I was the senior ranking first lieutenant, first lieutenant a lot of times if there were infantry-like missions, they were going to pick an infantry lieutenant that, that I outranked because of the type of company it was. Did the XO step in to fill Captain Jacobson's shoes? He did. He and the first sergeant started making decisions, and they started getting accountability reports. And once they knew something, they gathered all the platoon leaders and the platoon sergeants together at the picnic table that we had in our company area to make the announcement. And what were the soldiers doing at this time? They were checking on each other, talking to each other, and just seeing how each other were. They were also trying to kind of stay out of out of where the leaders were, the 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 platoon sergeants, platoon leaders, and the first sergeant and the XO, until they had an official report. How long did this go on for? It seemed like forever, but it was probably within the space of an hour once we had gotten back. And what, what, what did wind up happening? The first sergeant was the first one to hear the news, and so he said, I want to see all the platoon sergeants. And so he went over to the picnic table. All the platoon sergeants came, and of course the XO was there as well, so all the platoon leaders that were standing around came back. And he looked up at all of us, and he was a very tough guy, but um, even the toughest guys on days like that, they, their voice wavers, and he cried, and he said, Captain Jacobson died. And one platoon leader cried. I just kind of, like, looked down and, and prayed, and several others just kind of looked away because it was shock. Like, no, this doesn't really happen. You know, we don't actually have people die, like, not like this. Not our commander, but it, it, it took a while for reality to sink in. What happened from there? From there, there was a succession of command briefing, and then immediately the battalion commander was already looking at who was going to replace Captain Jacobson. And there were a couple speeches that day from both the first sergeant, who said, hey, it may sound heartless, but we're not just going to pack up and, and go home now. Like, we still have a job to do, and we need to be ready. So check on each other, make sure everybody's okay, be ready for missions tomorrow. And again, it, it did seem a little cold and heartless, but he was right. You know, you don't just pack up and go home. You can't just crawl into a ball in the corner. You have to keep soldiering. And so that's what we did. And we had a briefing later that evening by the battalion commander who declared the number of warriors we had lost. We also lost our, our they, back then they called it the NBC NCO, 
or the nuclear biological chemical NCO. Now it's called Seaburn. But we had lost him as well, uh, Sergeant Johnson. We had lost several other good men in, in other companies in the battalion. And so the battalion commander announced, uh, battalion commander announced a lot of that. Did you pack your trucks and go out the next day? I can't remember if it was the next day or the day after that, but I, I believe it was the next day. And it was very difficult because I was, I was very sad. You know, I'd, I'd gone back to my containerized housing unit, or choose as they called them, and I definitely shed some tears. I definitely prayed a lot of prayers, but something told me that he wasn't coming back. This was for real. And so everybody goes through the grieving process differently. And I was very, I guess, mopey would be the, the best way to describe me. And I remember being very offended when my platoon sergeant said, you need to get yourself together because the men are watching you. But again, he was right. I, I needed to. I, I had to, I, I hated that, but I had to, I don't want to say put on a fake face, but I had to think positive because there's still some positive in life. And I had to go on. I couldn't just quit. I couldn't just walk around sad all day. I had to be able to, to soldier up and find the good in what we had left, that we were still alive, that things could always be worse, and I'm, I'm a leader of men, and I can't just sit there and be mopey all day. So even though it, it offended me at the time, he was absolutely right. Did you snap out of it? I did, yeah, and, and he noticed a difference. I, I asked him because I was asking for feedback, and, and he, he noticed a difference. I also had the XO visit me and said, hey, the chaplain's available. And I said, yeah, I'll definitely talk to him. He also said that I think there was a psychologist or psychiatrist available if we needed to talk. But I felt like talking to a lot of people wasn't going to help because it wasn't going to bring Captain Jacobson back, that I just needed to continue to pray and get myself together. And we needed to just get through this deployment and get home safely to our families. In retrospect, do you think that was the right decision for your self-care? Probably not. I think I, I would have, if I can go back, I would have talked to a lot more people. I've, I've certainly talked to a lot more people since then, and it's, it's helped to get things out of kind of buried in your deep subconscious and get them off your chest. It doesn't make the, the feelings go away, but it helps you deal with them better. You mentioned earlier that you'd also been wounded. So that was February 16th, and I had moved from my platoon leader job. I, I finished my 26-month total of platoon leader time. And they moved me to become a XO of a nomad detachment, it was called. Now, this is before MIT teams that existed, the mission training teams. So it was basically an ad hoc unit that had been put together from t the 214 Cavalry Squadron. And they said, hey, your job is to train the Iraqis. And I was actually excited about that because if there was anything I wanted to do over there, other than be a platoon leader, it was to train Iraqis, to, to work with the locals, to brush up on my Arabic, which I was able to do with interpreters. And so that unit was back in Telafar, where we had initially started. And so I was going out with them on missions with the Iraqis. And one of our missions was to move up to checkpoints and swap out the soldiers. What I mean by that is we would take some of the Iraqi soldiers that were on the base, and it was their turn to be out on mission for 24 hours at a certain checkpoint. And it was the people at the checkpoint's job to come back and, and have a rest in the base. So on one of those missions in central Telafar, there was a several, I think it was several 155 millimeter rounds that were wired together in a median, and they blew up between two palm trees when I was sticking out the back of a striker and, and the hatch, and it, the shrapnel hit my chin, and it busted my helmet off. I, I, you know, felt the concussion. I fell inside, and immediately thought that I had been hit in the neck. I was, I knew about the chin, but I, I was worried about my neck. And I looked around and, and I realized I hadn't been hit in the neck. So the next thing that happened is the ramp dropped 
and I ran out there to the seven ton that the Iraqis were driving, which was full of holes that looked like Swiss cheese, and started to evacuate casualties. So I had a piece of shrapnel that was stuck in my chin. I couldn't keep my helmet on. It kept falling off. But I knew I had to – the Iraqis were sort of my men at that time, along with some, some U.S. soldiers. And so I had to get them out. So that was the circumstances. We were, we were getting shot at during the time as well. But um, all I knew is, you know, the men, we have to get them out of here. We have to help them. And, and so we, we did the best we could with the three that were at the front of that seven-ton truck. What happened to them? Well, the driver was in a very awkward position. He was missing one leg entirely from a, just above the knee down. You saw fresh bone and, and meat. And his second leg, his right leg, was very awkwardly wrapped behind him and around the gear shift, and it was about an inch thick. It, it, it was like the whole thing had been turned to jelly. And he was moaning a little bit. At first I thought he was dead, and so I started working on getting the other people out. But it turned out that he was still alive and he was moaning, and so I, I was calling in Arabic for more, more Jundis or more soldiers to come help me because my helmet kept falling off. I couldn't manage my weapon in that, that tight uh, front compartment of the seven-ton, and I just wasn't strong enough to get him out. And so I was, I was just trying to get them evacuated and get him out. You mentioned you could feel the blast. Did you suffer a concussion? Definitely. Yeah, all the symptoms of a concussion where you kind of feel lightheaded, you have headache, and you have headaches later on that day. You feel like you need to go to sleep, but everybody tells you you can't. I definitely suffered a concussion along with having the shrapnel embedded in my chin bone. Did that concussion impact your judgment on the scene? I like to think that it didn't, but I honestly don't know. It probably did because there were several things that I kept doing that were not logical. For example, every time I would bend down to try to pull this soldier out, this Iraqi soldier, my helmet would fall off. And I just kept repeating that same behavior, getting frustrated that my helmet kept falling off. My weapon was in my way, and I didn't think of me to pull it off and put it up on the dashboard. So there were several things that just made logical sense that I found myself not doing very well. Did, when you were evacuating this soldier, were you still on the X, or had you pushed past the ambush site and, and moved on? We were still on the X. We were still on the ambush site because that 7-ton could not move, and it, the, the engine compartment had been completely blown through. And so we had to get him out. There was another soldier that was next to him, who was evacuated sooner and all of his guts were, were missing or, or coming out of him. He didn't survive either. And then there was a third soldier, he was an Iraqi lieutenant, who had volunteered to go on the mission. It wasn't his turn to go as an officer, but no other officers wanted to go, so he said, I'll do it. And so we got him out. He had shrapnel in him as well. And so my, our whole goal and, and my goal was let's get everybody out of here so that we can get back to the aid station. You at the time, you're a lieutenant. Are you the commander of that convoy? There was actually an infantry captain that was on that mission. And so he was in charge of the convoy, but I was in charge of the detachment of soldiers working with the Iraqis. So it was kind of like a lot of times the, the infantrymen would say, hey, where are your Iraqis going? Or let's get your Iraqis, right? And I, I took ownership of them, right? Like they were my Iraqis because I was caring for them. And so he was in charge of the convoy, but I was in charge of the Iraqis and, and the small detachment of, of our folks. Did he make decisions that day, or were you still ma mainly running the show? He, he definitely made decisions. I made decisions about the Iraqis until it got to the point where he was aware that I needed to get myself taken care of. And he, as, as a captain, as a, as a commander, with the majority of the vehicles out there, actually, I didn't own a single vehicle there. I was, I was just a passenger on vehicles. He, he made all the decisions for the convoy. He said, we've got to get you back, and we've got to get these Iraqis that are injured back. And so that's what we did. We loaded up the, the one that had guts hanging out, 
um, into the striker. And um, I helped hold his IV bag while the medic was working on him. The, the driver didn't make it. And Lieutenant Ali, who is from the Iraqi army, he rode next to me with shrapnel in his temple, in his cheekbone, in his eye, um, in his throat, and I, I think all up and down his, his side as well, his left side. When you got back to the FOB, what, what was your experience? I just knew that we, we needed to get to the aid station. I was more concerned with Lieutenant Ali, the, the Iraqi officer that was with us, because he was way worse off than I was. I wasn't really worried about my chin bone. And they got us to the aid station. I was dripping blood everywhere uh, from my chin. But I just I was really focused on making sure Lieutenant Ali got taken care of. They put me on an x-ray. I bled all over the board. And I remember my first sergeant, who had come to visit and see me there at the squadron aid station, laughing at me because I was apologizing to the x-ray technicians for my blood dripping on their equipment. And he just shook his head at me and said, that, that, that's you. You would apologize while you're bleeding all over something injured. But um, I was so focused on Lieutenant Ali that I really wanted to know what was going on with him. And they said, well, he's going to get loaded up onto the helicopter and they're going to take him to the combat support hospital, the cache in Mosul. And so he's getting a flight there and so are you. And I, I think at that point, rumors began to circulate that I needed reconstructive surgery on my jaw that I was going to be sent back to at least Germany, but most likely the States, uh, because nobody was sure what had really happened to my chin. What did you wind up finding out at the cache in Mosul? So I got to the cache with uh, Lieutenant Ali, who was gurgling blood up in a, uh, I guess, a ventilator on the flight. And I remember just praying for him that I would be able to eat dinner with him again someday. And we both arrived at the cache, and they determined that the shrapnel could come out of my shin. I didn't know what was happening with Lieutenant Ali at that point. But I was very concerned that the shrapnel wouldn't come out. And the, the docs looked at me and they said, yeah, we, we can take it out. A lot of times they say that it does more damage if they take it out. So they leave it in and soldiers have months or even sometimes years later, shrapnel poking out of their skin at random times during their life. I did not want to be one of those soldiers. I wanted it out. And I also wanted to keep it if, if I was allowed to. And so... I was very thankful they were able to pull it out of my chin bone, and they ordered me no missions for several months until it fully healed and the scar was, was doing well. And um, they stitched me up, and I was very thankful for that. I had a lot of visitors. And ironically, my old platoon was there, I, my old platoon sergeant. I heard his voice, which is unmistakable. And apparently they had just been hit that day in Mosul. And so they were in the combat support hospital. Actually, I think it was the next day. It was the next morning. Uh, so the very next day, they had been hit in Mosul. And I got to, to see them in the cache as well. So you didn't wind up getting evacuated? Not from the cache. I got evacuated from the squadron aid station on the helicopter to the cache. But they didn't evacuate me to Germany. They didn't send me to, you know, to Landstuhl or back to the States. Because they said, no, it's, it's not as serious as some people thought. You don't need reconstructive jaw surgery. But they told me I wouldn't be eating corn on the cob anytime soon. So this is December of 2004. We're starting to learn a little bit about traumatic brain injury. Did they do anything for you for that? Not really. Um, and yeah, December 2004 was the defect bombing. This was February of 2005. But you're, you're right, same area, right? It's the same difference. Um, I don't think a lot of people knew too much about it. So just like if somebody got in a car accident, hey, make sure you're drinking lots of water, you know, make sure you take some Motrin for the headaches and, you know, try not to fall asleep if you start feeling really tired throughout the day. Try to stay awake and sleep at night. Other than that, nobody really gave me any advice. I'm sure there's some people that knew, but so much of this was happening. There were so many IEDs. Uh, at one point, Telefar was called the IED capital of Iraq. 
it's not because it had the most, but it had the most per, per capita or for amount of citizens in it. And so I, I think that a lot of people just were unsure of what to do. It's just, all right, you, you go back to work and you keep soldiering on and shake off the concussion, you know, get through it. Does the rest of your deployment go relatively smoothly? I would say for the most part, yeah. There were, there were a few other engagements, but most of them were smaller, like on election day and, and other times. I did have a second injury, and that was in April. It was actually the first mission that I was allowed to go outside the wire again, and I could wear a helmet again. I got a new chin strap and everything, and it was another IED, and this time I was dismounted, and I was about five feet from it, and I want to say the date was April 12th, if I'm not mistaken, and we were looking for a base to put Iraqis. They, they wanted to recon a site to have a little mini outpost kind of in the town of Telefar. And while we were dismounted walking up to this potential building, the Iraqis and myself and several other U.S. soldiers were in a blast that was seen miles away, uh, completely engulfed in the smoke, the explosion, rocks hitting our face. I, I had a bunch of small shaving cuts on that one, but nothing as serious as the first time. How did your wife react to the news that you'd been wounded again? I think she was okay. I was able to email her from the cache the first time and let her know. And I remember she kind of dissolved into tears and was thinking, what? Like, he can actually get injured or he could actually die? Captain Jacobson's death made it more real to her in December. But in February, she was thinking, well, I didn't think this would happen to Matt. And of course, nobody thinks it'll happen to you, right? But it, it really started to make me think and her think, like, is he even going to get back to see Caitlin? Uh, my daughter Caitlin was, was due the very next month in May. And that's when my rest and relaxation or R&R leave was scheduled. And I, I was having serious doubts if I was going to make it to see her be born. The second injury then, were you right back out on the road the next day? I, I think so, or, or maybe two days later. I, I can't remember. We, we didn't actually, there was a time when I was in that nomad unit that we would go out every day. And there were some times where we would go out every few days, uh, maybe three or four times a week. I want to say that we went out the next day or, or two days later. But very minimal downtime at all. Correct, yeah. A lot of times you would, you would get back from a mission at 10 at night, and you'd get ready to go on a mission at 3 the next morning. So get what sleep you can, but you know, go back out and, and train the Iraqis to do this job so that they're doing it well, and then we can go home. Matt, you had a pretty rough five months, it sounds like. What got you through that? I definitely would have to say it was my faith um, in, in God and Jesus Christ, and it, I kept recording missions daily. Um, they gave me the strength to, to do it every day. I, I didn't know why, but I felt like I have to write about this. I'm, I'm a historian. I'm interested in history, and there's a lot of miraculous things that have happened. I need to record them. So even when I got back really late from missions, I would be writing them in my mission journals day after day, and I'd be praying. I knew people at home were praying for us, and we were continuing to encourage each other that we could get through this thing. You're about to retire from the Army. You've spent 20 years in uniform, at least. What, what do you look back on from that experience in Iraq that has changed you as a leader? Uh, I think it makes me more patient with people. It's really changed me to be more understanding and recognize that some people have gone through a lot of stuff, and we don't know their story. We don't know where they're coming from or why they're doing the things they are. So we've got to get to know them, and we've got to be more patient with them to, to see where they're coming from and what they're going through in that moment. The other thing that's changed me is, is to, to really rely on other people, that I don't have to have all the answers. I, as a lieutenant, I sometimes felt like I did, and even as a company commander, as a captain, I did. But I, I started to realize halfway through my career, especially as I reflected, that you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. In fact, if you think you are, you're probably one of the dumbest ones in the room. 
You got to rely on the experts around you and listen to other people, listening to my NCOs, listening to other people's experiences and helping to be there for them where they're at right now. You mentioned journaling. Have you looked back at those journals? Definitely. In fact, just last year, I was doing my final edit of several that I or, or relatives or friends had done of what I'm trying to turn into a book before I handed it over to some professional editors. So I, editor, editors. So I went through every page of that book, my mission journals, and made sure that I edited them, that I updated them, that I put footnotes and, and my views today compared with my views then to reflect. What did you find was different? I found that my faith has changed a lot, and I've got a, a much more broad perspective now, I think, than I did then. But there are some things that are more specific. I also find that I, I don't like the feelings that I had at the time. There are a lot of feelings I had about the enemy and, and hatred that I think was probably misplaced at the time that I've reflected and thought, no, you know, it's, it's a lot more advantageous to capture it than to kill. You know, if you capture, you can use intelligence and you're not ending a life that could potentially be changed for the better. And so when you look at, especially in a counterinsurgency, that, that's really the best solution is to get them over on the winning team and not just end their lives. So there's a lot of reflection I've done on that. And you can kind of see that in my attitudes and thoughts when I read the book. Some of that I left in there so that readers could see exactly what I was thinking at the time. But I've given footnotes after that to say, hey, even though that's what I felt at the time, here's kind of where I'm at now. Any idea when the book's going to come out? Hopefully this month. It's, and I should have the proof copy in my hands in the next couple weeks to kind of mark up, see if there's any other final errors that we can catch. Sounds exciting. I look forward to seeing it. Matt, thanks for being on The Spear today. Definitely. Thank you for having me, Tim. It was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>